This is Channel 253. The Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rood, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. I'm Candice. I'm Doug. And we are the Citizen Tacoma podcast, informing an empowered electorate. I thought we were empowering an informed electorate. In in the the city city of destiny. Hello, Candace. Uh, hello. Today, <laughs> we had a very spirited, exciting discussion about affordable housing, which is a huge topic in Tacoma and super nerdy, but also very pertinent. Spirited? You, you stole my word. It's very entertaining. It's engaging. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. There was some sparring. There were there Game were. of Thrones there's, references. Uh-huh. There's there drops of blood on the floor of the studio. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> Welcome to Citizen Tacoma. Woo, we're here today with City Councilman Anders Ibsen. Hello, Anders. hello. And uh, Jason, you should introduce yourself. And okay, so your last name is Gothier, right? Got it right, yeah. And I've never said it aloud. Like Jason and I are friends. I've never said your last name aloud. And whenever I say it in my head, I'm like, think of it as like, he's gothier than me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You're so wow. gothy. That's but... what they well thought out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so introduce yeah. yourself. Uh, Jason Gothier. Uh, I work for Habitat for Humanity here in Tacoma Pierce County. Uh, normally I tell people I do whatever I want, but I guess I do have a real <laughs> title. I'm the Director of Operations and Government Affairs. So, so you're an expert on affordable housing. I'm not an expert in anything, but I know a few <laughs> things, I guess. Yeah, I sit in meetings occasionally mm-hmm. and learn things from people that are a lot smarter than I Are you like Tyrion Lannister? You drink and you know things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. Like, my joke when people say, like, what is what do you do as a government affairs director? Hmm. I say, like, the reason I got this job is because I'm good at talking and drinking. Uh, there you and go. So, He's a Lannister. Yeah. Yeah. I know, yeah, I know what I am and I know what I'm good at, and it's drinking and talking. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, Anders, you are also in the real estate world. Sure am. Okay, so that's why you guys are all perfect to have this conversation about affordable housing. Oh, shucks. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so this idea for this episode was kind of born out of a number of factors. Uh, within a few days, a couple weeks ago, the city council approved uh, 12-year tax breaks for a development at 72nd and Pacific that includes, quote-unquote, affordable housing. So when the city gives a 12-year tax exemption to a developer, that means they have to include 20% of the units in that development have to be, quote-unquote, affordable, um, which means that people are not paying more than 30% of their income. Right. And mm-hmm. it has to be affordable at that rate to 80% of the area median income. To folks making 80% of the area median. Correct. And is the area median income for a household of one, like, what is that roughly right now? It's roughly 50000 for the county. Okay. Okay, cool. F- for the for a household. We don't, we don't split it up by people. Okay. Yeah. And so when that, um, when that tax exemption was passed, uh, the developer, is, part of their affordability requirement is that their studios will be $1,046 a month, including utilities, and the two bedrooms will be, I think, $1,342 a month, including utilities. And in my mind, I was like, that is fucking crazy. Like, <laughs> I pay $9.95 for a studio, a really nice studio in stadium with a view of the water. It's totally walkable. 
And I make well over the area median income. I'm hashtag blessed. Mm. Um, so it just seems – and when I moved here, I made about what the area median income was. And even that, the 990 felt, felt like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more than I was paying in Brooklyn. So yeah. it just mm-hmm. struck me as really surprising and not affordable. So I kind of wanted to dig into all of this with you. Um, you too. And yeah, yeah. Um, so talk to me about talk to me about the the twelve year. Sure. So it's one of many tools, right? That's why by itself it's completely insufficient. Um, the other thing to keep in mind about the what's called the MFT or multifamily tax exemption is that it's really a derivative of state law and state policy. Um, applicants go through a process that's really designed by the state commerce department. And that's why we can't play around with the numbers like eight year, twelve year, eighty percent. Right. Um, a lot of that is fixed by state uh, administrative code and state statute. Um, where we do have some wiggle room to play is, uh, besides designating something as eight year or twelve year, is um, I think we might have some wiggle room with um, the amount of projects that can or cannot qualify. For example, so there there's some um, there are a lot of um, bits of testimony we've received over the years. Uh, about should we even have an eight-year exemption, which mm-hmm. is just from market-rate housing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the rationales for that is that Tacoma's market historically was a lot weaker than King County's and that we, you know, ostensibly we needed every little nudge we could get to get some crane in the sky, right, some activity. And um, the um, counter to that is that, well, rents have been skyrocketing so much that the private sector is taking care of itself. Of course, the counter to that counter is that <laughs> not all neighborhoods are the same, and Stadium isn't the same as McKinley Hill or right. or South Tacoma or or um, what have you, right? So, no no real cookie cutter answers to that. Right. So yeah, I've been um, when I when I started at the News Tribune about three years ago, I started writing about the multifamily tax exemption back then, and even back then, it was a question of, and that was before this kind of affordable housing squeeze really became a crisis. Yeah. And then even then, it was a question of, do we really need this eight? Do do we really need to give developers eight years of tax breaks for creating market rate housing? And yeah, and so that's kind of where we are now. Jason, what are your thoughts on the? Uh... Well, the, so the first thing that you sort of talked about was like the cost that somebody had to pay for like a, an affordable unit in a twelve-year MFT, right? Um, so you know, uh, I've been looking at this a little bit myself because we at Habitat for Humanity work in that similar world. We have to all of our clients are you know buying their house; they all are earning under eighty percent of the area median income when they come into the program, and so we sort of know what the fair market value of rents are and what people should be paying. Mm-hmm. And so we look at this, and actually, I'm going to correct you, Candace, too. So those weren't studio apartments. Those Fine. Were, were one-bedroom apartments. Oh, were they? So, oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, 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 they were one-bedrooms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So okay. I don't want to give the, the developer, like, short change there on that one. So they True. are one-bedroom. One and they're pretty big. They're, like, 575 to 620 square feet. Gigantic. Gigantic. Gigantic one-bedroom apartments. <laughs> um, so Thank but, you for but, correcting that. That's, yeah. That's why we're, we're friends, Candace. Yeah. So, yeah. Drinking Safe buddies. space, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I wanted to say was you look at – and I get that developers need consistency, right? If they don't if they don't know what they can do going into a project, it's hard for them to develop a project. Same for us at Habitat for Humanity. But um, so we look at – so um, affordable housing uh, defined by the state of Washington is uh, – Paying less than thirty percent of your monthly income for your for your for your housing unit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we look at the the rents proposed in um, the agreement with the city, and they are set at the maximum amount allowable. So to to call it affordable housing, I would have to be making exactly eighty percent of the area median income, and we know that's 
we know most people that are looking at for affordable housing are making well under that, right? So right. if you looked at what somebody earning 50% of the area median income, so they're ma- so a one-person household earning um, 80% of the area median or 50% of the area median income would only be able to pay about six fifty a month, right? And so that's you know four dollars short of what the affordable one-bedroom rent is set at. So I think the the problem mm-hmm. we're seeing there is. And I'm sure you guys hear this all the time at the council. Yeah. People look, come and say, these aren't affordable, mm-hmm. right? I'm earning, I'm on a fixed income earning $1,000 a month. Yeah. The $1,000 one-bedroom apartment is not, a, is nowhere, it's not affordable. That's my entire monthly income coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the that's the disconnect that I'm sure you, you hear a lot about is affordable units aren't truly affordable for us in this community. So what are the levers that, you know, that... Tacoma City Government or down in Olympia with the state legislature, what are the levers we can pull to either provide additional, because that's a, you know, the MFTE is a subsidy essentially. Mm-hmm. So what is the subsidy that we can we can sort of match directly for those clients to bring down the cost of that housing? So those clients that are earning well under 80% of area median income can actually afford to live in affordable units. Mm-hmm. Right. Quote, unquote, affordable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is your show, Candace, so you control how, how, how large scale or how, or how granular we get on the details here. Yeah. But I mean, Jason sort of pointed to the elf in the room here, and, and that is if we're solely looking at private sector housing, you're, you're never going to really fulfill that need because increasing mm-hmm. rents are the only thing that actually generates private sector interest. If mm-hmm. rents stall, if you create so much supply um, to the point where rents stall, and they never really decline for the most part, especially not in our region, but uh, where rents stabilize like they are in King County, Seattle or Portland or other places where they've had a building boom, what happens to construction? It dries up, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why you're inevitably going to need nonprofit partners and public sector partners to take that extra step with supply creation beyond um, what just developers are willing to do just seeking profits, right? You're going to need a mixture of all those things. It's, mm-hmm. it's an all-of-the-above approach. Yeah, you just jumped down to like one of my last questions. But um, so is so okay. We'll come back. We'll come back to that because I think that's a really important thing to explore. Um, so recently, more recently, going back to the multifamily tax exemption, um, the council voted to approve an eight-year exemption. Okay, for I think it's called the Haley Apartments. Yes, and that's by the library. That's correct. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about. So at these council meetings, the eight and twelve-year exemption didn't used to be like a hot topic. You guys would just kind of mm-hmm. pass them, and no one was really there. But now that right. there's all this attention to affordable housing, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more attention. So tell us what happened with that scenario last. Sure. Week. So that particular vote was um, an amendment to a development agreement. And uh, full disclosure, I abstained from that vote the last time just because the general contractor who's involved with actually building the building is just is actually a real estate client of mine in a, mm-hmm. in a separate capacity, hence my absten- uh, abstention. But just to give you an overview um, for informational purposes, um, this was originally a 12-year process. Um, the reason why it 12-year needed, project. Uh, excuse or... me, yeah. yeah a 12-year abatement um, relating to the development. Um, and the reason why it was amended was basically financing fell through on the uh, builder side. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were receiving a substantial amount of investment capital from the government of Vietnam, basically. So this was kind of a, a public-private um, development project, which, which you see from a lot of these various East Asian companies. And that, that's basically what necessitated the amendment of the, um, of the tax exemption accordingly. From a from a twelve year project 12 to, to eight. an eight year. Yes. And um, there was some controversy about that. I mean, what's your take on? Oh, the controversy, of course, was just what you described, right? right? About mm-hmm. the affordability or the the perceived need for um, 
for housing that, that people uh, won't break the bank to, to live in a unit for. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's very relatable, very understandable, and that's that's what caused um, some of the questions that have been asked for years and years. It's, it's not like that was the first time that right. came up, of course. Right. So, uh, Jason, what in your mind would make the 12-year more meaningful? So the city has the ability, like the state law allows for the city to set a more affordable rental rates, right? Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, de- any developers are going to push back on that because why wouldn't I push back on that, right? right? Uh, You're getting less money for something you built that costs the same amount of money to build. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but th- th- but the city has a the constituents of the city are not just the developers, right? Obviously, sure. and I know we all know that. But we can set lower rental rates, right? Uh, mandate those to set them. You know, so right now we're saying you know it's got to be affordable at eighty percent AMI, right? So the so the city has agreed for a number of agreements through the years in the MFTE. And I think there's only like 21 total mm-hmm. 12-year MFTE projects that have ever been gone through the city. Oh, wow. That's in the, that's in the last 10 years. Very specific. Well, I know some, I know some things. I go to a lot of meetings, <laughs> he right? He knows things, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It goes back to that yeah, thing. I go to meetings, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but it's always been set at that 80% area median income. So that rent's always going to be, It's unless you are earning right at that for mm-hmm. your household size, it's always going to be like technically unaffordable according mm-hmm. to the state's definition of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So this, the city could take action there and say, we're going to set the affordable rate at, it had to be affordable for somebody that was earning 50% of 50%, the area. Right. Right. Okay. So, so, like, so I could pay, so six fifty a month for one bedroom apartment would be that, that set rate. Now I have no idea what the pushback you'd get from developers would be. Maybe, maybe I mean, you talk to those folks more than well, I there, do. There's Anders. always pushback, right? I yeah. Mean, and that's, that's where it gets really difficult as a policymaker is that sometimes the pushback is legitimate. Some, sometimes mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a, with a situation where construction is largely consistent when it comes to how much it costs, it, it, you know, an apartment costs roughly the same to build in King County versus Pierce County, mm-hmm. but the rents are different. And here's the other X factor. While residential rents have been staggeringly increasing in Pierce County and Tacoma, commercial rents have largely still been weak. We, we've, we've not re, um, achieved the same kind of growth in commercial rents hmm. in Tacoma that we have in other places. And that's for a variety of other reasons, like older housing stock, um, kind of this catch-22 where you have low rents and you, you have these um, – um, older building components that you know need upgrading to modern code, but you don't have the rents that justify uh, someone moving in to to fix them and make those tenant improvements, and you're mm-hmm. kind of stuck that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's another factor. But so some of those concerns are legitimate. That sometimes if it's a question between making this kind of profit margin versus this, um, that may kill the deal. At the same time, a developer is always going to want free money. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's it's really tricky finding unbiased information to make an informed decision like that. Sometimes, but yeah. we have to try the best we can, obviously. Yeah. And and, and, and I don't mean to – nobody wants to demonize developers, of right? We, we need the private market to build housing, right? right? I mean, and, and I know, you know, I, in my professional capacity, I disagree often with city and county officials around their financing of our affordable housing projects, right? We can come to an agreement, right? But sometimes it's – we need a little more to help take projects off the ground. So I can totally sort of understand where a developer comes from to say, hey, Councilman Ibsen – we we need we need to push that rent closer to that eighty percent mm-hmm. limit to right. make my twelve year MFT project pencil. But and the, you know, the real strength of the private sector, besides just the fact that there's a greater um, amount of them and, and you have the economy of scale, mm-hmm. is is also speed and also kind of creative control, right? So we're very very constrained in terms of what we can do by statute, especially as a city. Mm-hmm. So we have to have a formal bidding process. Uh, if you're dealing with a school district, for example, they they have certain limits that a, a property has to appraise uh, or not appraise if. It goes through 
X hoop or Y hoop. So, mm-hmm. so we're very, very bureaucratic versus, um, say, a, a developer, even a nonprofit developer like Habitat, which can just go in and build a house, right? right. And a, a really good example of, um, of technically a for-profit operation that's doing wonderful work with um, – with affordable units is uh, Green Harbor Communities, which is the one that's building the uh, the preserve, which is on the a plot of land that, that used to be called Charlotte's Blueberry Park. Yeah, uh, it still is, and they're building housing that's actually targeted towards um, that bracket Jason had mentioned, which is uh, not technically at that fifty thousand dollar level, kind of hovering a little bit below, um, but at the same time not entirely subsidized either. These are basically cottage housing for mm. uh, for a workforce um, level um, uh, households. But and, I, have, uh, I have a question about that, too, because when yeah. I first saw that story come out, I was like, okay, I, and I can't remember the numbers. I haven't looked at it in a while. But sure. the numbers of those houses, like the, the cost of those homes and the value of those homes is way more in some cases than I would be comfortable paying for a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And these are folks that are making maybe $38,000 a year. Right. So then do you get into that issue again of people are maybe getting into a situation where they can't truly afford the housing? Maybe, but but we're also talking about we're also talking about ownership versus renting, right? And right. That's, and, it, and it's a very unique kind of ownership that they're talking about there because they have a land trust system where your house appreciates a little bit in value, but it it sort of is capped at how much it can go up. So okay. so it doesn't so your equity gain doesn't come at the expense of the next buyer, basically. And there's all sorts of down payment assistance and and just there, there's an incredible amount of opportunities out there that can also be linked to that as well. Right. Not to not to not to push back on everybody around here. But, <laughs> no, pushing uh, back is good. <laughs> I, I, so that Green Harbor communities, I know, you know, we've talked with them a little bit as well. Um, just you make you made it sound like we're like they're building, right? Uh, there's nothing been done to that property at this point. So they they're oh snap. Yeah. So they, I mean that <laughs> that project is not. Uh, I'm talking today in like my personal capacity, not my professional capacity right. as well. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think that developer uh, has a great has a great idea. You know, they they understand workforce housing necessary in our community. We need to have home ownership available for um, sort of all levels of income mm-hmm. to a reasonable degree, right? If I can qualify for a mortgage, I should be able to buy a house, right? So so they want to try to bring down that affordability and create this beautiful, walkable, you know, I got a park in my neighborhood, sort of small cottage style community. I, I think it'll, uh, we'll see in the future if that actually comes to fruition and what, in the way that's being talked about originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I have my doubts simply because of what I do professionally. Um, you know, we build, we have similar style communities and it is, a big lift to get those projects off the ground. I'll use an example. So we have a uh, completed about a year and a half ago a 30-unit development um, just outside the city of Tacoma in the Midland area. So technically Pierce County. Um, just b- before we could put a before you know before we put a stick in the air to b- building the first house, we had an, it was about a two and a half to three million dollar investment wow. just in the groundwork to do wow. to do that sort of project. So and that's with and that was with a lot of um, government subsidy dollars to get that project off the ground. So Green Harbor Communities was that a wetland or was there just there was, other site there, preparation there, involved? Yeah, there was a lot. Yep, yeah, there, there was okay. a wetland area. There was a lot of site preparation involved, but um, Green Harbor Communities wants to do their project totally government dollar free. They're mm-hmm. not a nonprofit as well, so they really couldn't access that. But I think uh, and I don't mean to spend all the time pushing back on that project, <laughs> but sure, sure. this is a good way of saying. Developing housing is really hard yeah. and really expensive and really time-consuming. It sure is. Um, and the best ideas for projects, you know, similar to the, you know, you, similar to the the, the library rush construction project, um, 
a lot of obstacles can get in the way mm-hmm. over time. So we want to build more housing. All of us do, nonprofit, for profit. Um, but it is a it's a complicated, super expensive process to do that. So the best ideas don't always come to fruition. Right. Um, That's the nut graph of this entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so Anders, uh, it's your last year on the council. Yeah. I know you want to do some more stuff with inclusionary zoning Absolutely. to kind of help our affordable housing situation. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that is and what you're hoping to do? Sure. It's an ambitious tool. So. I want to give a really big caveat since we're kind of in the spirit of crushing dreams or at least crushing <laughs> crushing utopian, you know, gee, wouldn't it be cool if we just had this one cool idea that we fixed everything uh, type dreams because that's not what public policy is about. It's about incremental progress with a bunch of um, small but sensible ideas having a multiplier effect, and that, that's what good policy really does. But inclusionary zoning could make a pretty big difference, but um, I have to have another caveat there, which is that it really takes a long time to achieve the desired effect. Mm. What it basically means to really, really simplify is you allow more development in a certain area, and in exchange, you require some of those units be basically permanently affordable, um, or it's really a 50-year requirement, but um, effectively, that's permanent, and I think there may be some provisions for extending that. But how that works, for, for example, let's say that we have a transit corridor, and um, we, we actually have a lot of great um, future conversation about this um, around Highway 7, Pacific Avenue, like from the Lincoln District um, all the way down to Spanaway, mm-hmm. where Pierce Transit is going to be building out what, what's called bus rapid transit, which is a really cool, really future-oriented uh, style of public transportation. And it makes a lot of sense to densify the housing around there to allow for right. taller buildings, more multifamily, because uh, people can just get on and go to work, or they can just commute to where they need to be, and it's it's very cost-effective, and it's it's great for the environment, good for all sorts of reasons. And um, it's a very underutilized place, land use-wise. Um, that whole corridor, uh, it's it's light commercial, even some single-family residential. And mm-hmm. it goes through a couple of, of mixed-use centers, but just really underutilized stuff. Sprawly. Kind of sprawly, yeah, very <laughs> suburban, absolutely. So what we could do, hypothetically, is we could just upzone the hell out of that entire corridor, you know, allow for you know mid rises and maybe some townhouses, missing middle stuff connected to it, and in exchange, as as part of the upzoning, um, we could say, developers, you are required to you know thou shalt put you know ten percent or twenty percent um, affordable defined as X Y Z um, for any kind of project above this amount of units, right? Mm-hmm. So we we sort of did that. We tinkered with that idea with the Tacoma Mall sub-area mm-hmm. plan, mm-hmm. but we could do this on a much more aggressive um, citywide scale, which I think would make the most sense to to partner with upzoning around transit corridors, because that's what we're supposed to do anyway in our, our comp plan and with um, regional plans like Vision 2040 and, and the, the soon-to-be Vision 2050, um, regional plans for development and planning for population growth. Um, so that's basically what inclusionary zoning is. It's, it's basically um, allowing for greater density for taller buildings and in exchange you can actually require, not just incentivize, but require some really affordable housing on top of that. Naturally, developers don't like it <laughs> because yeah. because it's a requirement, and you know, besides the um, the fiscal implications, um, there's I think the greater barrier is just the ideological um, side of being required to do something right because mm. that's that's kind of the prevailing um, conservative uh, political idea that you have to run into and and. You know, you, you have to challenge pretty vigorously to get something done sometimes. I, I mean, I don't like being told what to do either, and I'm not a conservative. <laughs> right. uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, yes. So, you know, so I have a concern. So obviously we want to build a community where everybody of all income levels can live, work, play, right? Like right. that's that's the goal of every community across the country, or hopefully it's the goal. Um, 
my concern, and you know, I, and I work with a lot of people in Olympia that represent sort of the you know the wide sort of spaces of different affordable housing. You know, from the, from the folks at FutureWise to the folks at from the MBA associations to the you know to the Washington um, Rental Housing Association folks. So that all have opinions on all of these issues. And I know one of the things that I keep I keep coming back to is. My concern, and we see it in Seattle a little bit with some of their, you know, mandatory inclusionary zoning, or I think man- MHA they call it, like mandatory yeah. housing affordability. That's part of their HALA. Yeah, yeah, and I know the concern is it. It's basically a really obtuse acronym, which was basically their grand compromise for preserving a lot of single-family neighborhoods, but upzoning mm-hmm. lots of cores and gotcha. and uh, you know uh, allowing for into the future a lot more density. Okay, yeah. okay, perfect. So, I, forgot what, I forgot what Hollister. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> Good job, Candace. You, yeah. you, you didn't reach out. Push him back. Real, real, real sleuth there. So I know. So I, the, my, like, the concern is that. You provide you, you, by doing that, you provide a deep subsidy for folks that need affordable housing, mm-hmm. right? But that because of that, you begin to raise, you know, the, either whether it's ownership or rental rates for the units around them, right? So you artificially increase the the cost of to get the cost to the consumer of the housing stock that's going to be available in the the market rate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. You know what you're talking about around you know creating these transit-oriented developments. I mean that's 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 to me that's you know middle-class workforce housing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that I can live there and get to my job quickly and easily through transit, or if I drive and you know want to do that, I can mm-hmm. do that. Um, so the concern is so like for me, right, middle-class household. Now my you know if I want to live there, I'm paying more to to because the developer has is taking a discount. To provide affordable, a deeper level sure, of affordable sure. housing. Well, respectfully, let me push back to your pushback. <laughs> uh, yeah. can just, yeah. just do jujitsu yeah. all morning. Um, I'm just here to push you around, Anders. No, That's my job today, right? Uh, here it is. <laughs> so, so a couple things, and and obviously we have to be cognizant of cost, and, and like we we mentioned at the beginning, no two neighborhoods are the same, and and we need to be very very. Um, sensitive to those needs. The flip side, though, is that inclusionary zoning doesn't just ha- – it's not rent control. It's not just mm-hmm. a requirement that you have to be affordable or you have to cap rent. It pairs that requirement with enhanced development ability. So you can go an extra story in exchange for reserving some units independ- um, some units as affordable, so for you're example. you're making up that rent right. in your extra story, right. maybe. W- with some extra density, perhaps. That's one of the other arguments. The other, other argument, though, and this is, again, kind of going a little bit um, larger scale – is that the cost of rent, the cost of housing, the, the the price that people are paying for this kind of space is not dependent on the cost of construction. It's the cost of construction reflects what people are willing to pay. But I mean, that, that kind of is putting the cart before the horse a little bit. I mean, let, let me put it to you this way, Jason. So let's say you're a landlord and you know you charge, let's say, a thousand dollars. You know, per per unit, right? So I'm a reasonable landlord. You're a reasonable landlord, right? <laughs> All right. Let's All right. let's say you, you All right. let's say um you're on um let's say you have a five unit building, so you're on a commercial loan. It's variable rates, and your mortgage has just gone crazy, and you need to make up the difference somehow. And let's just say you're making up the difference, and you're getting a little greedy, so you want to charge it up to fifteen hundred, so you're made whole, and you make a little profit, right? But if the average tenant is still only willing to pay a thousand dollars or even eleven hundred if they're on a stretch for your unit, mm-hmm. are you really going to make fifteen hundred, or are you just going to have a vacant apartment? Right. Well, I would. So I'm gonna. I'll push back to that okay, as well. Okay, and then that right. has to be the last pushback. Then we have to take a break. <laughs> okay. So all, all, I'll, all I'll say to that is, most landlords in that in that scenario you're talking about a five unit development, right? I mean, my. I'm really not making money on that, right? My the, what? That's an investment. That's a fun. That's a more fun investment than putting my money in the stock market. Mm-hmm. I'm just investing in real estate that I'm able to uh, get some cash in the door to pay off that mortgage. So. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I'll let Candace take a break then. Oh, it, oh. Because you, you seem to be shaking your head. No, so. no, I'm, oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped. <laughs> no, that's, right. yeah, that's, oh, so that's. So, so I, I'm saying that is that it, the cost of, of building something, it doesn't necessarily lead to increased rent. Rent is a reflection of what people are willing to pay. And if they're mm-hmm. willing to pay more, they'll raise the rent anyway. That's my point. What a great place for a break. <laughs> <laughs> this is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 sister podcast, Nerd Farmer. Fam, you know I'm all about travel. I love traveling to away games for the Sounders or Tacoma Defiance. I love visiting new cities and cultures. And that's why I'm so grateful to have a hometown airline like Alaska right here in my backyard. Because they get me wherever I want to go. If you haven't heard yet, Alaska Airlines is sponsoring an amazing opportunity for members of Channel 253. Anyone who is a current member of Channel 253 on June 17th, 2019 will be entered to win air travel for two anywhere Alaska flies. Got that? I'll say it again. Join Channel 253 anytime between now and June 17, and you will be eligible to win air travel for two anywhere Alaska flies. That means Cancun people, Cabo, D.C., Pittsburgh, Vegas, Columbus, Anchorage, San Francisco. I'm just listing great cities now, but you get the idea. Sign up for Channel 253, support what we're doing, and be entered to win air travel for two. To sign up, visit channel253.com Alaska. Terms and conditions apply. To all the fine people of Alaska Air, thank you for sponsoring this promotion and for your longtime supporter, Channel 253. Okay, we're back. Uh, as you just heard, we have a great promo going on. If you're a member of Channel 253, go to channel253.com membership to become a member. It's $4 a month, which is less than a tube of Burt's Bees or $40 a year. Back with Jason and Anders, who are sparring. (laughs) Sparring over affordable housing. It doesn't get nerdier than that. Yeah. 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 I mean, the funny Anders and I really do, like, Anders and I talk quite a bit and text quite a bit. Like, we really do agree on a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, you know, I just, I look at it from a different perspective on a lot of times. He represents the developer opinion, and that's that's something I don't represent the developer opinion. I just, I just, I represent the affordable. I'm a citizen of this community. Uh, Right. (laughs) And a new homeowner. And a new homeowner. And he knows things. And he he drinks and he knows things. And he drinks water in this case. (laughs) Congrats on the new place, by the way. That's a beautiful area. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Um, So (laughs) I don't even know how to get us back on track after that. Um, So the the current – back into the inclusionary zoning, right now the one example of it in Tacoma is at the Tacoma Mall area sub-area plan. Um, And it's a requirement that – 10% 10% of units be affordable to people making 50% of area median income. Correct. Um, which is about probably like $25,000 a year. And that's on any project that's, I believe, and that was months, you know, months ago that we passed it. But right. I, I think it's any project that's above 15 units or above 10 units or something right. like that. And so is that, but is that, is like, is 10%, is that really meaningful? Or like, is your plan in the future to bump that kind of proportion up. Okay, so that that was a really small portion of one of many neighborhood sub-area plans. So that was mostly just about getting our foot in the door and, mm-hmm. and talking about that concept. Um, any kind of, of visiting inclusionary zoning, again, it has to be met with the humility to understand that this is something that has to be married to all sorts of different stuff, whether it's um, backyard cottages like we just passed with accessory dwelling units, mm-hmm. uh, partnering with, with nonprofits like Habitat and with um, public sector agencies like Tacoma Housing and, and just 
densifying in general because vast, vast majority of our city is still single-family residential, uh, more transit-oriented developments, so many other things. So, so not overestimating the impact of inclusion or zoning, but um, I, I think really the strength of it is 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 the permanence of not only creating new affordable units but retaining them. Mm-hmm. That's that's the real strength of them. The other thing to keep in mind is that. In addition to partnering with all these other uh, different affordable housing um, policy steps, inclusionary zoning is really something that takes years to achieve. So I mean, Seattle only recently passed their um, their HALA compromise, which I, I still can't tell what it stands for. Sorry. <laughs> totally uh, fine. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, their, their, their grand bargain of retaining some single family in exchange for some additional density up there, that was what, within the past several years, mm-hmm. right? So. We're looking at at least a decade, 15 years, 20 years to really see the impact. I mean, it's it's looped into the comprehensive plan as a result. It's, it's land use. It's something that you don't see immediate results from. Right. And for the 12-year multifamily tax exemption, I forgot to ask this, but the affordability requirement goes away after they stop getting that tax Correct. break. Okay. I just want to make sure that was... And they're not required to jack up the market rents, but right. most will. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. So uh, this is a good one for both of you. What do we need to do to... And we, you touched on this earlier. What do we need to do to create more affordable housing? Is it better incentives for developers or does local government need to step up and really start shelling out the money for this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes to both? Yes to everything. <laughs> you really need an all of the above approach. Uh, it looked like you wanted to say something, Jason. I mean, I could talk Jason's about this. Jason's ready. Well, yeah, well, ready. So, well, so like there's – and I know this sounds dumb because everybody says it, but there's no silver bullet approach, right? It's right. it's using the whole suite of options, right? And I'm, I'm really excited. I know um, the county executive has, has put together the Pierce County Mayoral Forum on, a, on sort of afford- housing affordability. Um, and I think they're kicking off their, like, their really formal meeting starting – Thursday, actually. Uh, Peel up City Hall at 8 a.m. if anybody wants to go. Okay. I'm guessing you'll be there. Yeah, I'll probably be there. <laughs> uh, but so I'm really excited that they're trying to pull in like the broader Pierce County community to say, we what are the, what are some solutions we can do, we can use here in our community, right? Um, it, you know, so there's no silver bullet. I mean, I could take some swings at some things that might make, you know, from the affordable housing developer sectors, you know, easier, you know, and some of them are hard topics to broach because there are some interests that would, would push back. So, you know, we could look at, so this year there was, um, there was a study completed by the Joint Legislative Audit Review Committee, JLARC. It's a, it's a permanent committee down in Olympia. And they looked, and they looked at the cost of building affordable housing using different incentive programs that the state and then the, the federal government offer. That was pretty boring. But uh, <laughs> the what it showed is it, it costs more to build affordable housing. Yes. It's more expensive to build affordable housing, which doesn't sound correct when you say it out loud to a lot of people, but it's more expensive because of some of the requirements that we have to hit to do that. So if you want like, to think, Like reporting requirements and stuff like that? It's not even reporting because that's just paperwork, right? Mm-hmm. That's people time. Um, so one of the things that I, I, I've talked about with people before, and this is sort of, you know, this will get me in trouble in some circles, but you know, if you wanted to look at... so. We often talk about that we're in the middle of a housing affordability and afford- affordable housing, a homelessness crisis emergency, right? City declared a state of emergency, right? right? So we're in an emergency. When I hear the word emergency, like my mind always goes to like hurricanes, right? These disasters, right? This is a disaster that we're in. And so what do we do when there's a hurricane somewhere? We respond with swift, decisive, overwhelming resource, right? Because people can't live in an area that's been torn apart by a hurricane, right? Mm -hmm. So we call this a crisis, an emergency, a statewide crisis. And yet... We're, we and it talk, takes us 15 years we to pass talk backyard incrementally, right. <laughs> like, oh, well, if we do this little thing, we're going to add, you know, this, you know, we're, we're going to add 
40 more affordable housing units, you right? You could save tens 40. of dollars a month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so if you want to take big swings, it's things like, right. why? Are, what, what about a 10-year statewide moratorium on prevailing wage for affordable housing development? Prevailing mm-hmm. wage adds... I couldn't tell you, but you know, 10 to 15% on affordable housing projects, you want to make those dollars more efficiently spread out, reduce my cost to build, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really affect Habitat for Humanity. Our projects are much smaller than those big, you know, multi, you know, hundreds of units developments that cost that really trigger those prevailing wage laws. But, you know, those are topics that get people in trouble. So yeah. whether you wanted to talk about, you know, prevailing wage, lowering our cost to build, um, if you wanted to say in the city of Tacoma that we're going to, you know, for the next... 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, we're going to waive every building fee and inspection fee for affordable housing units that are produced. Go ahead and do that. You know, Pierce County for the first time this year, and I'll applaud the council and the executive, for the first time since they passed their affordable housing incentive package over a decade or just over a decade ago, they actually put money in so that they could waive impact fees for affordable housing development. Wow. Um so we want to look at taking swings, you know, at reducing our cost to build so those dollars can be turned back into more affordable housing developments. Let's start cutting costs, right? right? Let's start, if, if the city says this is an emergency, this is a crisis, here are some simple, legitimately simple things that you could say today, hey, no... Like, the, the you know, fifteen thousand dollars for the building for the building permit fees for for affordable housing development those are gone right the city is willing to take that loss because we want to serve you know we want to serve folks who need housing affordability mm-hmm. you know so you know we could go on all day Anders about some of this stuff <laughs> of course uh, but you know but it's it's about you know, and you're bold enough. I know that. And, you know, you're in your last year in the council, so you can make a lot of mistakes now. Yeah, just oh, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Push yeah, it through. You can do whatever you uh, want, right? <laughs> this is your legacy, Anders. Do something. Oh, okay. Uh, well, but, that kind of encouraging, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. With, with Jason shaking his fist at me. Oh, yeah. uh, but, you know, there's there's things we can we can think about doing and look at doing. Um, we just, it seems right now in Tacoma, like the climate is right to take some of those bold swings that our community would support. You know, I'm looking forward and really hoping to see in 2020 that we'll see a ballot initiative for a um, for um, a housing trust, a house affordable housing levy in the city of Tacoma, right? Sure. Is the city of Tacoma and the residents of the city of Tacoma willing to vote yes um, to raise their property taxes by a hundred bucks a year so that we can raise a hundred million dollars mm-hmm. for ten years to build affordable housing? You know, I know. You know, folks that I talk with, you know, it's a it's a lot of folks say no, right? I don't oh. I don't want my property taxes to go up, right? Mm-hmm. But are we willing to invest in our community, right? Um, it'll be interesting to see if that comes to the ballot, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, to any, you know, to folks that are listening to this, like, talk with your community. Are you willing to sp- spend an extra hundred dollars a year for the next ten years to build hundreds, if not thousands, of units of affordable housing in your community? I mm-hmm. think when you say it like that, people want to say yes, right? Hell yeah! I don't want to. Yeah. yeah. Well, Candace has never met a tax she doesn't like, but. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, but, you know, uh, we're at a time in Tacoma where it's exciting, right? You, you, we want to yeah. upzone everything. We want to invest more in affordable housing. We want to cut costs for affordable housing developers. We want to be more flexible in the way that we finance affordable housing as well. So let's do it, mm-hmm. right? Let's do all of the above. Anders. <laughs> Anders, you're rebuttal. Well, well, presto manifesto. Uh, <laughs> so I, I've, I've always felt that we could be bolder, right? I mean, that's... That's kind of the uh, the real challenge of being in government is that you're not only dealing with colleagues and committees. Oftentimes, the biggest pushback comes from staff, especially in a, uh, frankly, a, a kind of governmental form that's very staff heavy. Uh, you have term limited elected officials, and um, 
it's it's often a challenge just to get something through the committee process onto the dais for for an actual vote, right? Because you're you're often negotiating with the bureaucrats as well as with your colleagues, and that's kind of the unfortunate political reality. But that's that's where citizen Tacoma and that's where community advocates like yourselves come in is actually lighting a fire under us. Um, so yeah, we we do need an, an everything of the above approach. Um, I think that um, while there definitely is a role for examining the costs. So for example, we we have historically had a fund for permit waives or uh, subsidizing some of the permit application costs uh, for projects if they're affordable. Um, it's just a question of where do we take the money from, but we can we can definitely fund that more. Uh, Tacoma Public Utilities can do the same thing for any kind of affordable housing uh, project. I would um, I don't think you're in trouble for talking about prevailing wage, Jason. I mean, I mean, boldness means you put an idea forward, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and then you just have people talk about it. Um, the flip side, though, to housing affordability, though, is earnings, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't yeah. want to—I wouldn't want to rob from Peter to pay Paul yeah. just to make mm-hmm. one project cheaper and and take away from someone's paycheck, right? Because mm-hmm. that kind of defeats the purpose. Um, but definitely, we should consider that. The other other flip side to looking at cost, though, is that in our conversation about we need more affordable housing. It's it's not just a one-size-fits-all approach. What mm-hmm. we really need is more urban affordable housing. Right. Because if you're looking at the typical family who who maybe lives in Fredrickson or Spanaway, right, that means you're entirely car-reliant. It means you're paying 400 500 plus just on transportation, which is usually the second household mm-hmm. cost right after housing. And that's completely insane. Mm-hmm. How, are, how are we being cost-conscious for these working families' um, livelihoods if we're mandating that they have to spend money on a depreciating money pit? Right. When, when they could live when they could live in, in, a, in a more urban setting in which they have additional transportation options, additional options for, for work, for livelihood, for everything. So – not to not to rag on the people who live in the county. That's not what that's about. But that's it, what it sounds like Andrew. <laughs> well, Andrew's hips in. Jason's from a very rural town. He's oh, very yeah. angry. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just simmering over there. <laughs> now he's turning into a Targaryen. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, if we're looking at the creation of more housing, um, I think that's what we should really put in parentheses at least is mm-hmm. more urban housing because it just makes more sense and it keeps costs down too. Yeah. The flip side though is that we will never out cheap the county. I mean, land is inherently cheaper out there as well, and that's one of the biggest. Costs when you when it looks when when you look at construction. I work with a lot of developers too on the appraisal side when I'm I'm helping people determine the worth of their pile of dirt for what it will be when it's when it's all built out. Land costs are, are pretty uh, mm-hmm. pretty high part of that, mm-hmm. and we we can't control land. We can't control what what land value is, and so inevitably, even if we completely cheaped ourselves out, um, the county would usually beat us. So um, keeping that in mind, um, I do I do agree though that. Um, Something like uh, different revenue options, like a housing um, a housing affordability trust fund for the city of Tacoma. Definitely on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, more than willing to pay my fair share to capitalize it and bond against that revenue stream as well, yeah. so we can build even more mm-hmm. in partnering with private developers and nonprofit developers. Um, we actually have some recent new authority from the legislature with our real estate excise tax. Yeah. So I've, mm-hmm. I've actually asked the city attorney for um, – what options, if any, there may be for bonding against that. Can you explain that? Sure. So every time you you, uh, sell a house, you pay in the city of Tacoma, it's 1.76%. It varies per city. Um, And that goes towards the real estate excess tax. Historically, that's only been for capital projects. Mm -hmm. Um, But recently, and Jason can talk more knowledgeably about this because he basically lived in Olympia for the past few months. Um, (laughs) We have more flexibility for how we can spend that on on certain um, kinds of projects. So we we can, uh, I think, what, we can partner with Tacoma Housing Authority or we can, or we can, we can 
front that with the uh, Tacoma Community Revitalization Authority or something along those lines? Can you explain how that works? I, I wish I could. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I focus on the issues that I focus on down in Olympia. It's money we can... I actually passed a bill this year that, that I'm headed down to a bill signing later this afternoon okay. um, that exempts uh, our sort of projects from um, the real estate excise tax. So, uh, okay. oh. there you go. so we're not paying our fair share anymore. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> decisions, oh, decisions. Yeah. So that's one Sorry. thing. Bold, yeah. Boldness, you kind of touched on this, but land use, right? So if, if you want to look at real bold, you want to look at just bold, bold almost to a fault, which I, I think is great, is uh, cities like Olympia or Minneapolis, for example, which have basically obliterated single-family zoning. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've basically said if you live in just any kind of residential neighborhood, you can build up to a fourplex or you wow. can build yeah. up to a triplex. And I mean, cities like New Orleans have had that forever. Are anyway. you advocating for this right. right now? Because we're in the North End and I feel I like... I know. Yeah. I was yeah. like, Doug's yeah. neighbors heard this. They're <laughs> yeah. like, what? <laughs> so... <laughs> See, seeing as I'm, I'm in my last year, sure, why not? Oh, wow. Wow. Damn. wow. <laughs> I mean, come on. we, we got to get on this. It's, if it's a crisis, right? Right. But, uh, and, and more than that, more than just helter-skelter growth everywhere, but, you know, mm-hmm. much greater concentrations around transit corridors, actually buffing up our mixed-use centers, um, looking uh, – I think something we need, really need to look at for the downtown core with old buildings is we need a revolving loan fund for tenant improvements. Uh, that's actually something my colleague uh, Ryan Mello's pushed for a number of years. Uh, but we, we actually have an experimental loan right now for historic architecture that allows for basically subsidized tenant improvements um, through a revolving loan fund. Mm-hmm. So I think we need much more of that for these mm-hmm. old buildings that are downtown that just have really cheap commercial rent that can't mm-hmm. finance their own improvements and maybe attach some housing to that, have some work live or work, live work. Yeah. So all of the above. All right. We only have about five minutes left. So I wanted to talk about uh, the other side of this is kind of keep, keeping people in their homes and making sure that they – if they have a place that they can afford, that they don't become homeless. Right. Um, so the city and the state have done some things in the last year to help kind of tenants' rights. Um, can you quickly, can you guys quickly outline, outline those? So, uh, well, so I'll turn over to Anders because he's one more of an expert on the city stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. Sure. But, but the interesting thing is the state did sort of mirror in a lot of ways what the city of right. Tacoma had already done. So okay. the city of Tacoma was pretty progressive on that end, or at least oh. beating the state to the punch uh, on some of Good those job, some of those tenants uh, tenant protections. I think you know, Anders can talk more in detail about them. I right. think what will be interesting to see is... I know a lot of the messaging coming out of Olympia this session was, you know, and I, I heard this from a lot of folks that, you know, eviction is the number one, is is a primary driver of homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be really interested to see over the next few years, does that bear out? Are we going to see a reduction in homelessness now that now it's harder to evict somebody? I have no idea. Uh, you know, if I was a betting man, I'd probably say no. I think I think homelessness is driven by a number of other causes, and eviction is further down that list. And Obviously, homelessness isn't a monolithic category, and there's yeah. there's people living in their cars, there's kids surfing couches, there's women fleeing DV, there's yeah. mm-hmm. all sorts of different aspects to it. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be that. So that'll be to me that'll be a very interesting thing to look at in you know four or five years. I know one of the one of the interesting things that I saw in the last year, you know, we talked about it. Eventually, was talking about it as a crisis, right? Another right. crisis we got to solve. Um, there was a report done. I think it was called "Losing Home." Uh, it was a report out of Seattle, um, sort of pushing for these eviction prevention, you know, tenant, you know, tenants' rights issues, and. In 2017, there was like 140,000 rental units in the city of Seattle, and there were 1,200 eviction proceedings. So you're looking at so of that some of those cures. Let's say let's say 700 of those of those 1,200 you know court cases went to eviction. That means we had 700 total 
you know, rental housing evictions right. in over 140,000 rental units. So, so not a so huge like, number. I mean, I don't, I don't do math. Uh, <laughs> is that a strong suit of mine? But I, that, that's well under 1%. Right. Um, so is, is, that, is that a crisis? Right. right? I, I, you know, it, it's a crisis for me if I get evicted 100%, mm-hmm. right? But is that something that's really driving homelessness? We'll see in a couple of years when we look at homelessness numbers. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, what's the city doing on as far as tenants' rights, trying to keep people in their homes? Yeah, a number of things. So, um, we um, initially began this conversation with the um, the mass evictions from mm-hmm. the Tiki Apartments yeah. over on South Nineteenth Street, which um, I still think there are a couple of people who are homeless as a result of that, but mm-hmm. largely they've they've been sheltered, thankfully. But that was a developer who bought this place, which was kind of known as, as a really rundown um, apartment complex and, you know, people who are basically pensioners or, or you know, people who are disabled or, you know, people who are really vulnerable were living there as yeah. a result. And um, long story short, that became the basis of several provisions of our local code, which then became the basis for state law. And not to belabor it too much, but the big takeaways were um, uh, a requirement for much greater notification. So right. previously, um, you're, you're just out in in what, 20 days? That's the, yeah. 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 And, and so that, that was, that was henceforth expanded anytime there's a change of use. So if, if you're kicking people out so you can remodel your apartment or if you can turn it into a nursing home or into an office or whatever, previously that was, again, that was 20 days. Mm-hmm. And now it's, um, significantly longer than that. I believe it's, it's 180 days, right? Or 160. I don't, I think, I think the, and somebody yeah. will look at this on the state, the, the bill, but I believe it, I believe it's 90 days. Excuse yeah. me, 90, yeah. right. Yeah, 90. I think, I yeah. think that was the compromise. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It was 90 days there. And I, th- I think it was initially 120. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Yes. Oh, correct. Excuse yeah. me. A lot of floating numbers. Part yeah. Of oh yeah. And it was, right. That was a year ago. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and, we, and we all hate numbers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not as much as Jason. But, uh, <laughs> but, and one of the other bigger things was anytime that there was a rent increase, it would go up uh, initially it was one it was 10 up to 10 percent and then we just said any rent increase um, mm-hmm. now requires um, a 60-day notice, 60 day notice for example yeah. and and uh, there's any time that you were um, basically displaced as a result of a change in use then the landlord would have to give you a thousand dollars the city would match you with a thousand dollars to help you relocate to help mm-hmm. you pay your your initial um, deposit and so forth, uh, background check, all that for your, for your next apartment, and other provisions like that. Non uh, protection against retaliation, right? Uh, things like that. Um, so one thing I want to touch on really quickly is yeah. uh, when, and that that was all uh, sweeping and massive and really significant for the city and for renters. Um, some people at the time were wondering why just cause evictions weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, implemented as a new requirement for the city of Tacoma. Can you talk about that? It was just the politics, frankly. I mean, same mm-hmm. reason why it, it didn't get to the floor or, or it didn't um, get to a similar vote down in Olympia is that um, there there was a core progressive echelon, but um, there was just so many different things up for negotiation that it was just one thing that unfortunately didn't make the cut. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, part of this job, at least in the city of Tacoma, and, and it differs place by place, is uh, it's really important to get the staff on your side as well as your colleagues. And right. that's, that's kind of a reality is that um, I think staff was honestly a little bit resistant to some of these things too, more mm-hmm. than others. And um, But I think really the, the strength and the speed and the urgency with which we passed tenant protections in Tacoma um, wasn't just a reflection of having people who were sympathetic to these problems in the community, and we do, but it's because we had a real grassroots operation from the Tacoma, from the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee, mm-hmm. from FutureWise, from... 
um, from DSA, from the tenants themselves, um, who just pushed us to do the right thing. And they, they pushed us in a really smart way. I mean, it wasn't like some of the other fist shaking, you know, activists who just want to hear who themselves talk. About? <laughs> I, I don't know, Candace. I, I played the fifth there, but um, they, they were strategic. You're like, your, your last year, Anders. You can, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you so, come on the pod, man. Yeah. Uh, so, so they pushed us to do the right to do the right thing, and, and they did it in a very concerted, strategic way. They made actual demands. They made things right. that we could actually have the authority to do, yeah. and um, and they weren't rude about it. You yeah, know, they, they didn't yeah, make it, they were very respectful. They came with policy. They came with policy solutions right. for you, right? And the, what you're saying, yeah. And I've seen this too with 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 groups that organize. Is they they yell about the problem, right? And yeah, give me the solution you're looking for yes. here, right? Sure, and they sure. came with that solution they were looking for, and and they told their stories and they met with us individually, mm-hmm. and it was and they held us they held us up to the ideals that we say we stand for. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's how well, good the, activism works. Yeah. And yeah, and the stories were heartbreaking, and the people who yeah. were being affected by this were involved and yeah. were like are still really involved so i think that helped yeah and they, yeah. and those same folks from the, the tacoma tenants organizing committee they i saw them multiple days down in olympia this year to testify for different rallies so, you know so they didn't just stop when they went when tacoma passed their protection right, right? they they carried that up right. they carried that forward to the down to olympia and they're the reason why you know 5600 and um 1440 both passed down in olympia this session mm-hmm. yeah. right all right, well, we're running out of time. Um, any final thoughts in about a minute or two? Sure. I, I just say that all of these ideas we've discussed for the most part are definitely worthy of discussion. They're all good things. We should pass them yesterday, right? <laughs> but um, I think it is, as any policymaker who's been in this in this game long enough would tell you, you have to keep one foot kind of in the now with with a, with a mind to pragmatism, what can actually be done, what's, what's within our ability to do right now. But you also need one one foot that's a little bit more visionary into the future because you don't want to just get lost into the here and now, right, mm-hmm. and miss other possible opportunities. Mm-hmm. So if you look globally, I mean, the, the biggest possible scale with housing, if you look at cities like Vienna in Austria or, or Singapore, for example, that are kind of like the gold standard with urban design, these are cities in which you have public housing, for example, that's universally available and not means-tested. And so middle-class working families, even in theory some upscale, you know, earning households or whatever, can rent in those homes. And as a result, not only do you have housing that's that's basically enshrined in their constitutions as a right, but you have a disciplining effect in the rental market because mm-hmm. you have a housing stock that still gets built regardless of whether there's a, an incentive to build it. And mm-hmm. so that's – if you really want to look at the – closest thing you can to a silver bullet to really bring down rent prices and really stabilize it is you need to decommodify housing a little bit. You need to make housing so it's not just a commodity that increases or decreases based on on the profit motive, um, but something that's provided as, as a right and as a service. And that's that's really the gold standard. And that's far beyond the the, the scale yeah. of, of a municipal government to do. But at the same time, that's, that's kind of the goal, I, I think. Yeah. So you want to cut into your own personal profit margins? Then it sounds like, <laughs> hey, you know what? Andrews Ibsen willing to make less money. Okay, got it. Here it here. Got to got got organize yourself out of the job sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah, I can get behind that movement actually. Um, so the one thing that I'll say, and this is a conversation that I've had recently with some different nonprofit leaders in our community, um, and there's organizations that are already doing this, like Sound Outreach, where it's talk, talking about wealth building um, for their low income right. clients, right? Um, I had a great conversation last week with an, uh, an unnamed nonprofit CEO, and she was telling me, you know, we've got hundreds of units of you know affordable rentals for low-income households, but there's no 
there's no plan for them moving to something, like moving up, right? Mm-hmm. How do they build wealth? How do they move into home ownership or market rate rental? What's the plan there? Uh, so, you know, I, you know, as, you know, thinking further down the road, right? Like build more affordable housing. Of course, we mm-hmm. need a place that everybody can live, work, and you know, everybody can live, work, and play in Tacoma of all income spectrums. But you know, what is the plan to continue to move people, right. you know, up that housing cycle, right? Until they're able to, you know, achieve whether it's, you know, affordable home ownership programs like Habitat for Humanity or some other programs that are out there or um, move into market rate home ownership and begin to build wealth. Because, yeah. you know, like it or not, you know, how do we, the primary way that we build wealth in this country is through home ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if we want to build, re- really start to begin to build wealth for people and, you know, end potential cycles of generational poverty, there's a there's a way to do there's a there's a primary way to do that but it's moving people through that cycle you know, giving them the tools um to give them the tools to you know improve their economic outlook in life so that's that's jobs that's financial, financial literacy, literacy that's oh, that's geez. oh yeah well, yeah yeah you know that's i mean jobs for candace right yeah, sound for financial for... literacy and you know reducing people you know improving credit scores reducing predatory car loans those sort of things there's a lot of folks doing great work in this community it's mm-hmm. my it's one of those knocks against the nonprofit world that we're not coordinated enough yes. and we all want to improve people's lives but we don't work together to do that. We say, yep. we put a we put a flag on a hill and say, I do this really well, mm-hmm. you know, and now we're going to compete for money because I got to do my thing better mm-hmm. than you do your thing. So, All yeah. right, we got to wrap up, but that okay. was awesome. And thank you both very much. That thank was a you. lot of fun. Thanks, Candice. <laughs> Let's do it again. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Citizen Tacoma today. We are part of the Channel 253 Network where you can also find these podcasts, Move to Tacoma, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounders B-Team, and Taco Man. If you'd like to reach out to us about anything you heard on the show today, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, please email me at candice.rude at gmail.com. That's Candice with an I, dot rude, R-U-U-D, at gmail.com. The Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rood, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.